If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Sid Vizwanathan, co-founder and president of TruePill, the company revolutionizing the pharmacy and healthcare industry. Sid founded TruePill in 2016 alongside Omar Afridi. The company shipped its first prescription less than five years ago and has since expanded its services to deliver an end-to-end, direct-to-patient experience unlike anything else in the healthcare industry. To date, TruePill has filled over 7 million prescriptions, facilitates over 50,000 telehealth visits per week, and has grown to the team of nearly 500 employees. TruePill was named to Forbes' next billion-dollar startup list in 2019. Before TruePill, Sid co-founded CardMunch, a business scanning app which was acquired by LinkedIn soon after its founding. After its acquisition, Sid joined LinkedIn as product manager and saw CardMunch named one of Time Magazine's best apps of 2012. Sid started his career in Johnson & Johnson's Global Operations Leadership Development Program, working in the medical device and pharmaceutical sectors. He graduated from Carnegie Mellon with a bachelor's degree in mechanical and biomedical engineering. Let's welcome Sid. Hi, Sid. First of all, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. And I just want to kind of start from the beginning. First things first, for people who maybe haven't heard about TruePill, what's TruePill in your own words? And walk us through the origin story. Hi, Alexa. Thank you for having me on. TruePill is a digital health platform that combines telehealth, diagnostics, and pharmacy. And we power businesses that are trying to deliver modern consumer experiences. And we do this at scale across millions of patients and now hundreds of different trusted companies that leverage our platform. As I've heard it, TruePill has been described as the AWS for healthcare, which is obviously a big, big vision. And the origin story started with a cold LinkedIn message that you sent to your future co-founder. Can you just walk us through a little bit of those early days and what led you to reach out to Omar and that aha moment to go build this business? Yeah, when I left LinkedIn, I actually went back to the drawing board to start something again. And I didn't actually know what idea or what space even I was going to go into. And as I was kind of exploring different problem spaces and, and ideas, as, as cliche as it sounds, I would kind of spend a week on a different problem domain. I would reach out to people. The fastest way I've learned I, I, I get up to speed on a new industry is just talking to people. I'm not the type of person that can just Google endlessly days upon days. So I just have to talk to real people, other founders, investors, entrepreneurs to learn about specific spaces. And so part of it was, believe it or not, I wanted to learn about the pharmacy space that week or healthcare more broadly. And I started going on to LinkedIn and I stumbled into Omar's profile and I messaged him and I usually... My style is I don't generally ask for like a coffee chat or like would love to meet up. I actually go straight to a very pointed specific question to try to elicit a response. And I asked him for a very specific opinion around a company or an opportunity. And that really started the conversation. And we went back and forth over dozens and dozens of emails actually across months. I think at the time, uh, Omar was in the UK when I messaged him. 
on, on vacation. And when we came back months later, we actually got together and, and we met up and spend several more months together before we even started Truepill. What is the customer experience for Truepill? How does this you know, change the end consumer's life? And at this point, I think there's some wild number. You guys have filled over 7 million prescriptions and that's growing dramatically. But give us a sense of like, what does this mean for the customer? Every industry that we experience in our, our lives today, we have an app just about for everything, an online experience for just about everything else. And then, And when you look at healthcare, for a variety of reasons, it's been one of the slowest industries to consumerize. But what I can tell you with, with a high degree of confidence right now is we're going through that, that shift today. The, the consumerization of healthcare is unavoidable. And today, for the first time, you're starting to see members and patients experience things that are just as good or on par with any other consumer experience that you might use, like shopping on Amazon, pulling out your phone to request an Uber. And I think historically, we haven't thought about healthcare in that form. We, we don't necessarily think about our health insurer or our health plan or our doctor experience as being one of a modern consumer experience. And so for us, it, it's how do you build the underlying components and infrastructure to allow our partners and companies to deliver those types of experiences? And I think that's been our premise from the start. And I think today we have plenty of experiences that I can point you to where our customers are building kind of modern direct-to-consumer experiences on our platform. And it ranges across every type of customer from some of our earlier digital health customers to our some of our largest payer customers like the United Healthcare Group, for example. So we're seeing it across all ranges, big and small. If we rewind a little bit, one of my favorite facts about you is you first founded CardMunch, as I mentioned at the intro here, a business card scanning app, which is acquired by LinkedIn. And then you decided to go launch TruePill, a, you know, a category that you had no expertise in, or you know, maybe learned a lot in, from this. It's obviously very clear you're you're a, a learner in every way. Did that scare you? Like, what went through your mind, or was it just like you love the you know the the appetite of going after a category that you have to learn about and try to innovate with beginner's mindset? I think without a doubt that's true, but I didn't realize it at the time. I think as a first time founder. The idea of, of starting a company of business is, is something that you're, you're reaching for. And you don't necessarily always have the luxury of picking and choosing and being patient about exactly what you want to pursue. And so you meet your co-founder, there's an idea, you meet your first investor, and before you know it, you're full on into that venture. And I think when you get a taste of a little bit of success or have an early exit, whatever it may be, the second time around you get a chance to, to really be patient and kind of pick and choose what you want to do. Now, don't get me wrong. That also comes with a bunch of analysis paralysis and you, you get slow to just start and dive in the way you do in the beginning when you have nothing to lose, so to say. And for me, what I observed over that period of about a year when I was looking for an idea is I was spending a lot of time on direct-to-consumer type of problems. I was launching different apps and concepts with a friend of mine for, for many months and almost a year. And after about three months of each of these ideas that we would rapidly iterate on and launch, I would kind of lose steam. And I would look back and say, this is not really a problem space that I want to spend like 10 years on my life focused on. And I noticed this over and over. It was like a pattern of two, three, four different things in a row. And that made me realize that although I didn't fully appreciate what was happening or why I wasn't getting locked into an idea, I thought something was wrong with me. When I stumbled into healthcare and I met Omar and I started asking my hundreds of questions to Omar and like learning more about the space, what I observed was even though I wasn't building anything, I wasn't writing a single line of code, I wasn't building any product, I wasn't doing anything except learning and asking questions, 
the months went by, like two months went by, three months went by, six months went by. And I was still asking questions and still like getting nowhere in terms of fully understanding and comprehending the vast healthcare industry that we're in. And frankly, I would say five years in, there are still so many parts of the industry that I just do not understand. And I, I think I learned through that process that that's what I, I love. That's the type of problem space that I will never master. I will never be an expert at, but I can spend a really, really long time pursuing something in it. And I think that was a characteristic for me that was important in the company that I started and important for me to stay locked in over a long, long stretch of time. And I think that varies for every type of entrepreneur in terms of their level of mastery in a domain and comfort in a domain space. I'm, I'm never comfortable in healthcare because I don't fully understand it, but I also think that's what makes me dangerous and hopefully can go a long way. I like it. I mean, I really, really love the mindset. I want to talk a little bit about the pain point in the pre-True Pill uh, healthcare world. I know faxing has long been used for sending prescriptions. For example, I come from a family of, of doctors and nurses. Can you just kind of step back and talk about just how broken the world was? What were the obvious things that you could easily begin to fix? There was so much, Alexa, when we looked into the space that we had to hone <laughs> in on what was the problem. You're right. Faxes are still, believe it or not, a predominant use of how prescriptions are transferred between pharmacies in America today. And, and that's crazy to say in 2021, but that is the de facto standard. And so for us, we really had to focus on one part of the problem. And it really came early on when we saw this shift, when I talked about this, this consumerization of healthcare that was happening our thesis in bed at the time was that the existing pharmacy infrastructure in the country, your, your retail pharmacies, whether it was the Rite Aid, the Walgreens, or CVSs, they weren't equipped and they weren't going to change their businesses to support this new generation of consumerization for a variety of reasons that uh, we don't have to go into today. But it was very clear to us that if we are going to start in pharmacy, we needed to reinvent the wheel in a model that would support this next wave of healthcare. And I think that's where... We formed a thesis very early on in our company of, of being a pharmacy infrastructure company. I think certainly the AWS of pharmacy is, is one of our more flattering analogies that we, we love, but it came from that mindset of there's going to be so much direct to consumer stuff happening in healthcare. We don't wanna be just another direct to consumer player. We actually wanna redefine how the underlying stack, if you will, the underlying infrastructure is built in this industry. And we happen to start in the pharmacy space and I think that served us well in the in the first years. So now, you know, again, you actually had this really prescient comment that you said back in 2019, you said, we are only really scratching the surface of where this telemedicine landscape is going to go. Obviously, then COVID happened. Uh, so again, you are very good at seeing into the crystal ball um, and forced just obviously a massive acceleration. Give us a sense now that we are almost a year and a half into COVID, what do you make of what we've just been through and how is it changing TruePill and, and your future strategy? Without a doubt, that acceleration we've seen across all parts of healthcare. And I think there's this magical moment when you realize you're in the midst of something that no one ever predicts. You can never plan for something like a pandemic as a founder. But when you realize that what you've been saying and preaching for years leading up to the pandemic, what your mission and vision are as a business they align with what's needed to not only get through the pandemic, but also what's needed post-pandemic in this new normal. That's a really energizing and uplifting feeling for the entire company, frankly. And I think what we saw through the pandemic and even coming out of it is 
those two points of number one, this consumerization is, is unavoidable now. Like as much as the largest incumbents try to fend it off or fight it, it's happening. It's happening from all fronts across the board, from the customers that we power to the Amazons of the world entering the space as well. And I think in the last 12, 18 months through the pandemic, every business has been forced to switch to telehealth for their own existence. They had to switch to a model where they had to see patients remotely. And a lot of it was done on infrastructure that didn't exist. They literally had to whip it up out of thin air and move to Zooms and Microsoft Teams and everything in between and figure out how their systems would adjust to this telehealth world. And coming out of the pandemic, I don't think anyone is looking back and saying, well, we're going to bounce back to exactly the way it was. I think telehealth is here to stay. We're seeing the signs from our government regulations in terms of reimbursements from a Medicare, Medicaid standpoint, all the way across the entire healthcare industry that this is not just a fad. This is something that is going to be here to stay. And I think the, the economic models will support it for, for the decades to come. And it's a question of how much can you do with telehealth? And we're super bullish that you can do a lot of healthcare over a virtual or telehealth setting. I've said all it took was uh, last March, call it March 15th-ish, um, seeing my 74-year-old mom quickly transition to Zoom to start to see her patients. And I was blown away just because I literally said to her, this is going to be the future. And obviously somebody like her at 74, who's not drinking in technology every day, she was like, this is so easy. Of course, we're going to do this. And so yeah. I, 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 I think saw that's a first. perfect example. Yeah, I, I would ask her if she's going to go back and she'll tell you kind of face point blank what she thinks. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. One of the things that I want to dig in that you've said, you envision a future where 80% of healthcare is delivered digitally. And then you said at some point, there will be about 20% that maybe technology is not well suited to solve. Can you just give us a sense of where you draw those lines? Sure. I think that 80% is is a conservative. I, I don't see why even more of that can't be done over a telehealth or a virtual setting. But when you think about healthcare at the acute stages, when you're dealing with very complex disease states, or you need an MRI, or you need surgery, for example, th there's no way, at least I see a future where some of those things are done at home or in a virtual setting, for sure. And so I think that there will always be a place for healthcare in this country that's in person when when applicable and when needed. But what I think is the future now is even in cases where surgery is involved or, or an imaging or an MRI or a CAT scan or whatever it may be when you're managing a complex condition or a complex disease state, I think we're going to start to see the emergence of these hybrid models where historically you would do everything in person all the way leading up to pre-op and going through a surgery, I think a lot of those instances of interacting with the healthcare system can get moved into a hybrid model where some of it done, some of it is done virtually, some of it could even be done in your home. And ultimately, you do need to be in a, in a hospital setting or a healthcare setting for certain procedures and operations, for example. But that's where I think the, we will push the, the limitations of what you can do over a virtual setting. And outside of some of those obvious cases where you have to be in a physical hospital or doctor environment, I think everything else with the advent of at-home lab testing, with the advent of like mobile phlebotomies, like today there are companies, believe it or not, that are setting up ICUs in your home, an ICU environment with all the devices and technology from a monitoring standpoint to keep you alive can be set up in your own home. And that's where we're heading as a, as a healthcare economy. That's just wild to think about. Um, Sid, I want to just have you step back and dream for a minute. Um, clearly, you're somebody who kind of likes to bring a beginner learner's mindset into gnarly, massive industries that we badly need to, to, to evolve and make better. 
if you sit where you are today and look out a decade, what would you say is one or two predictions that you have that is extremely obvious? Obviously, you've said things like 80 to maybe 90% of all of healthcare will be fully digitized. But give us some more specific things that you can see really clearly that for the rest of us who aren't obsessing over the category, maybe can't see. I think the easy one to point to is it might not even be a decade, it'll probably be the next five years that all 330 million Americans will use some form of digital health. And I think that Today, we think of it as like, oh, it's millennials or smartphone users. That's not the case, as you pointed out with with your mom, for example, that I think everyone in our country, all 300 million Americans will be touching digital health in some form or another. And I almost liken it to if you've observed and if we watch what's happened in in an analogous industry like fintech, for example, or consumer fintech, about five years ago, I think the stat was like one out of five Americans used some kind of consumer finance product. And today it's I think five out of five, not only five out of five, I think we're probably using multiple fintech applications or consumer finance apps. I see the same trend and same story playing out in healthcare. And at that point, it's it's very clear to me that we're going to need a ton of infrastructure, a ton of different building blocks and Legos, if you will, to get us there. And that's what we're trying to position our company to build. And I don't think it's going to take a decade to get there. I think it'll take the next three to five years where every American is going to touch some digital healthcare experience. And I think our job is to figure out how to kind of weave ourselves into that story for as many of those Americans as possible. I love it. And then lastly, just on on TruePill, before we transition a little bit more um, about you, Sid, you raised over $114 million in funding. You have been on every major list, including, you know, most likely to be a next billion dollar startup from 2019, et cetera, et cetera. Again, you filled over 7 million prescriptions, over 50,000 telehealth visits per week you guys are now facilitating. That's pretty crazy. Um, when you kind of step back about what, when you think about what you've been able to accomplish in a short period of time, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of the fact that we had conviction in our B2B approach in the model. It was it was somewhat new and relatively unproven. And while It's very easy, I think, to decide to become a B2C business and go launch brands and and do that, which I think is one way to build a a large business. It it takes a lot longer to build a platform business, so you have to be more patient. And I think it was easy when we were tested at various points in our life to to decide maybe we change focus or think about a different go-to-market. We stayed the course, and I think that's something I'm proud of now. And looking back, I think it's going to serve us really well that it took us probably two years to close our first payer customer. And when you're talking about a a two-year sales cycle, if you miss on that sales cycle, that changes the kind of outlook for your company. But we are fortunate that we closed it. And now we've seen a lot of momentum in that space with a number of different healthcare incumbents in the space turning to TruePill for their needs. And I think that all came from staying the course on, on being a B2B company when most folks didn't really understand what that meant or how big it could be or who would use this. All your basic questions that everyone's going to ask, we asked them to ourselves, but we we still stayed this course. And that's something I think we were proud of at Truco. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. 
From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Cardiff Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. So Sid, let's transition a little bit to you. If we like rewind the tape, was it obvious that you were going to be a founder and now again, a serial founder of two successful companies? No, not at all. I mean, if I were to go (laughs) back to... I think I've read all the books of like, you know, are you born a founder? Do you become a founder? And all the different dialogue that happens. And for me, I think the first inkling probably came in my senior year of college where I worked on a design project and I thought it was a cool idea. I was like, oh, this this could be a product that's sold. And I actually remember filing paperwork to incorporate it as a Delaware company. And believe it or not, I actually was thinking about this uh, a few weeks ago. I don't know if you've seen these late night infomercials on this company called Invent Help that helps kind of take your ideas and usually shows up on late night TV shows. And they promise that they're going to take your idea and turn it into a multi-million dollar invention and sell it to all these companies. I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's what you're supposed to do with an idea. So I actually call that company. I actually, you know, I'm cringing thinking about it even now. I probably spent a thousand dollars. They sent back this big binder of all these notes about all these other related products and devices. And that was the end of it. That was it. that was about how far I got in my first company. But I would say that's where the seed got planted of like, oh, this, this is interesting. Like, how do you take something from a concept or an idea to a business? And then when I had my first job in college, I, I was going through different business units at Johnson & Johnson. And I learned a lot about how a company like J&J works as, as much as you can learn in your first job out of college, I think. And I realized that this is not necessarily what I wanted to do is not what I wanted to spend the next 10, 15, 20 years of my career doing. And one of the stints I had at the company was out in the Bay Area. And that's when I probably got my first taste of San Francisco and and the Bay Area and and what is a noticeable difference in terms of how this part of the country operates than anywhere else that I've experienced in the country. And um, it was magnetic. And that was the that was the pull for me. And, And a lot of my college friends from Carnegie Mellon were out in the West Coast and doing very different things. And even tech jobs just felt so different to me. And some of them were dabbling in startups. And I was like, yeah, this is what I'd like to try. I just didn't know how to get there and get started. But I knew that was the the start for me of just deciding I wanted to try something and go do it. So I, I want to come back to this, you know, concept of you, you know, you founded Card Munch and sold it to LinkedIn back in 2011. And then you decided to just dive right back in and build something else in a category that you weren't an expert, you weren't a deep expert in. Can you give us a sense of, as you made that jump, what did you take from being a founder the first time into your arsenal being a founder the second time that gave you confidence? And then what did you leave behind? So what are the things that you brought with you that you had learned that worked all the time? And then if anything, what are the things that you said, God, I learned the hard way X, Y, and Z isn't great. Let's never do that again. As a founder, you take that like resilience with you every step of the way. You're going to get knocked down a bunch of different times. My first startup was relatively a, a short time period. I was working on maybe the business for under two years before we were acquired by LinkedIn. And I went on to spend about four years at LinkedIn. So at that point, if you add up the time I spent at my first job in LinkedIn, I was in corporate America or companies longer than I was a founder. And I knew that that didn't feel right to me. The itch eventually came back and I knew that I had to start a company. And so I think the second time around, the the things you kind of leave at the table are you understand what you do need to focus on as a a startup in the early days. And and also you might be at different life stages. For me, 
Uh, second time around, I was married. We didn't have any children at the time yet. But you understand that now you can and you have to find a way to start a company with other priorities, whether it's your your significant other or your family, for example. And, and starting a company in your early 20s or mid 20s versus early 30s or mid 30s is very different. And I think that comes from you have to understand how to focus your, your time and thinking and your, your effort. And don't get me wrong that I think founders know this intimately that you can never like separate yourself from thinking about the problem, but you don't have to actively be working on it rather. And I think a lot of founder friends or even friends of mine ask me like, Hey, are you working like 70, 80 hours a week? I'm like, no, I kind of work like 40 hours, maybe 50 hours on a really busy week. You're thinking about the problem all day long, but you're only logging in a certain set of hours. And I think that's something that came with experience the first time around. The first time around, I would work all day, every day, six or seven days a week with no other obligations and commitments. And that's what we did. And I think you can do that for like bursts of stretches, maybe even a couple years of stretches. It's not sustainable. And now I've, I've learned that if you want to be a founder for your career, you have to take this mindset of you'll have, you'll have 30, maybe 40 years even of founder life. If you choose to choose to embark that embark in that journey, and you do have to figure out how to pace yourself across 30, 40 years even. And so that's kind of what I, I took from the first experience of like, yeah, there was burnout. There was a lot of intense nights, weekends, hours. And that's not the only way you, you have to build a company. And so I think you learn from that and figure out, well, what do you need to build a successful company and focus on just those things and leave everything by the side. One of these things I, I learned about you that I really got excited about was you talked about this idea that an early startup team should be able to build an MVP wholly in-house from concept to coding. And you walk that walk both in your product experience and in your co-founder being your original pharmacist on staff. Why did you think that was so critical? Just give us a little bit of that insight in, into the way you think. Yeah, I still believe that's probably the most important thing I look for in any founding team is, is that ability to kind of build and launch your entire business without dependencies. And I think that's the case for a number of reasons. I think probably the first and, and most important is, is thinking about burn and, and capital preservation. If you do decide to go raise money, if you do decide to bootstrap, you look at one of the largest expenses that I see companies incur when they don't have all those skill sets is when they have to pull in people very early on to pay high dollars, whether it's a developer or engineers or other parts of the business that you don't have the skill set on the founding team. And I think it's extremely important to be very lean and, and capital efficient in the early days because you frankly just need time to figure your business out. And so if the dollars are flowing out faster than you have time to figure out what your business is and how it comes to life, you, you'll just cut your timeline short. And I think that's I always try to press upon other founder friends that you want to keep your dream alive as long as possible. And you don't know whether it's going to work on the 23rd month of your runway of 24 months, or if it's going to work in the first six months. So you just cannot predict that. So you have to operate with this lean mindset every step of the way. And then for us, it was even more important because we were bootstrapped. We bootstrapped the business for about a year before we even, a year, year and a half before we raised any money. Omar was still working the nights and weekend shifts at CVS in, in San Jose. And so he kept his main job. I was not working anywhere else at the time. And if we were shelling out a lot of dollars to other folks that would need that we would need help on to rely launching our business, we would just feel the pain a lot quicker. And so I think for us, having the skill set to do it gave us the time to figure out the model. It takes a long time, unfortunately, in this country to set up a pharmacy and go through all the board of pharmacy stuff and all your insurance contracts. 
but we did it very, very cheaply. And, you know, I actually remember the lease that we paid for this like room in, in Hayward, California, which is actually where a lot of our facilities are now, but they're, they're much larger facilities. Our, our first room in a strip mall above a, a, a shoe shop and a, a donut shop was like a $220 a month room. It was like $200 a month for a 200 square foot room. And it was the cheapest room we could literally find all across the Bay Area that was within reasonable commute. And that's where we filed for our first board of pharmacy license because we knew it was going to be vacant for the first nine months. So it all goes back to we were bootstrapped. This was our own hard-earned money that we were spending. And we needed to last as long as possible until we figured out what the model was that we're going to go to market with. I love it. I respect it. And in almost every single level, I couldn't agree more. Um, I want to quickly transition to the quick fire round. I'm going to ask questions. Give me the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, and we're going to start with what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, my son, he, he makes noise on the baby monitor every day. So that's the first <laughs> thing. And then probably the second thing is uh, I like to get to the gym first thing and try to get my mind cleared up and, and get ready for the day. When you are interviewing someone, what is your favorite interview question to like really get to the core of whether or not you think somebody should join Truepill? My favorite question would be asking the, the candidate where they want to work after Truepill. So I almost kind of have them envision what they are having a successful run at Truepill. And I was like, last one, well, what do you want to do after that? What's your next job? I like it. Today, biggest pinch me moment, really where something happened, it came through, it worked, and you just said, oh my God, I can't believe we pulled that off. What was it? I think it was launching a, a very large-scaled uh, COVID food program for the United Healthcare Group. Um, we serviced 500,000 at-risk seniors that were above the age of 65. And it was a it was a challenging, operationally complex project. When we look back, I think that was a, a major turning moment for our company to showcase what we could do beyond where we started. That, wow, what an amazing thing to do. That's incredible. Fast forward two years, Sid, how many days a week are we going to be in an office? Two to three. Last insight question on you. What is the best hack you have for managing stress? Keep a very regimented schedule outside of your work hours, as regimented as possible. And there are times where I'm, I'm quite intense and other times where I'm not. But I think that helps you prepare for the day-to-day -day chaos of a startup. Startups are inherently unpredictable. So try to make the rest of your life as predictable as possible. Sid, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so proud of all the work that you're doing. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more about TruePill, check out TruePill.com. You can join us next week on Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Bontobel. Thank you, Sid, so much. We're rooting for you.